So hello and welcome to the HOW Shift podcast, episode 10, which is talking about talking. So for this really exciting subject, we are joined today by Emma Neville, who joined us on our previous podcast, which is about the new normals in COVID-19. Hi, Emma. Welcome back. Hi, good to be back. And we're joined for her debut on the podcast by Jen Voss. Welcome to the podcast, Jen. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Really excited, especially to be talking about talking today. Been a huge focus of my personal and academic interest studying linguistics and psycholinguistics through university. So I'm really excited to be part of this. Fantastic. So without further ado, I'll stop talking and I will hand over to Emma to get us kicked off. Sure. So today the topic is speech and discourse. And we want to understand what discourse analysis is, what does it look like, and when and where is it going to be useful for us in healthcare market research. So Jen, as our expert linguist, why should we care about language at all? There are so many reasons why language is really such an important kind of point that we often overlook. Subconsciously, our language, we use it to position ourselves relative to others who are in the conversation or even who are not directly there in the conversation. Uh, We use it to demonstrate our true opinions, our true feelings about something. What we say is more than just the words that come out of our mouths. It's how how they come out of our mouths. And it can really open up you know, numerous layers beyond just what is being said and really kind of accessing a greater portion of reality by by focusing on language. So just to, to give an example or two, if we're thinking about one of numerous examples in the healthcare industry, have, if you've ever been to a doctor's appointment where after a few minutes you're kind of like, well, what is, I don't understand what, what this doctor is saying. And some HCPs may tend to use a lot of jargon um, and medical vocabulary, which other than just being a bit hard to follow for the patient, it's actually itself communicating a message. It's positioning the, the HCP and the patient in this discourse and kind of establishing the HCP as the authority figure while also making it harder for the patient to kind of keep up, if you will. Thinking about a patient who has a consultation in a second language, in the U.S., at least where I'm coming from, we have numerous communities where English is not a primary language and they may still be going to English-speaking healthcare providers and there is a lot that can be like lost in that translation and some of the nuances of what they're trying to express about their condition or what they're feeling are not going to make it across to the HCP. That makes a lot of sense. So I actually grew up in Germany and I had all of my healthcare and also dental care done in German. And there was definitely a bit of a language barrier in that every single kind of dental appliance that was put into my mouth, and believe me, there were so many (laughs) over the course of my childhood, I had terrible teeth. The English translation for all of these different dental devices was translated as appliance. So as a really vague term, and as a kind of 13-year-old, I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I was going into these appointments. All I really knew about it was that it was an appliance. It strikes a chord with me, and it reminds me also a little bit of a game I used to play as a child, the telephone game. I don't know if you played this um, also in the States, but yeah. where kids are sitting in a circle, and one of them will whisper into the, a phrase into the ear of the person on the left, who then whispers it into the ear of the phrase person next to them, and so on and so on and so on. 
by the time you get to the final person in the loop, the phrase has become so warped and distorted that it's something completely different to what it was at the start. It shows the importance of communication, particularly in the context of something as important as healthcare. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a great example because the telephone game, it really kind of distills what room for inter interpretation actually means. The context of the people it's sitting in that circle isn't known to each other. And so the person who speaks the phrase initially and the person who receives it third down the line, fourth down the line, they could be thinking in totally different frames of mind. And, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Sounds like we're very much in agreement that language is a really important topic. And both of our examples actually were at the interpersonal level, so thinking about communication from one person to another. But if we kind of zoom out and think from a more academic lens, we can also consider patterns of speech that occur at group levels or at the societal levels. And this brings us to what academics call a discourse and specifically the analysis technique of discourse analysis. I'll give an official definition just to keep us all on the same page, but discourse analysis is essentially a set of analytic approaches that analyze written and spoken language. And it analyzes that language within exactly what you just mentioned, Jen, which is the use of that language in a specific social context. So the unit of study is not just one sentence or one interaction, but these larger scale conversations around a topic is looking at what are the different patterns of language around one area that, that reveal kind of certain metaphors that people are using. And if you read between the lines of language at this large scale, what it reveals is some really deep underlying beliefs and assumptions about the world. The language that we use is very leaky and it reveals a lot about how we interpret reality. So one way to think about this is that we build our interpretation of reality and we reflect that back on the way we use language. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So you may have heard of Steven Pinker. He's very well known in our field. And one of his very quotable quotes is that language is the window to the human mind. So he studies language and he believes that by doing that, he's actually tapping into an understanding about human nature and how the mind operates. So if you want to know what people think about a topic, if you listen to them close enough, they will tell you a lot more than they think that they're telling you. Yep, it's what the words say and what the words aren't explicitly saying. So as you know, fascinating as it is, I guess, how then is discourse relevant in healthcare? So, I mean, discourses are all over the place in all areas of life. Thinking about healthcare, they can crop up, or we've seen for clients that different discourses have cropped up between different therapy areas. So health is thought about and approached in a very different way when thinking about some conditions and others. So you can think about, for example, the way that we talk about chronic illness versus the way that we talk about more episodic or one-off illnesses. We've also seen really interesting differences between the discourses that people use to approach health and certain diseases um, just between different groups. So the discourse that a patient might have about their experience of a certain condition may look very, very different to the discourse that medical professionals have about that same condition. And we, we see a lot of conflicts in the kind of 
frameworks and assumptions made about diseases between those two stakeholders. And one that I find particularly interesting is the different discourses that even primary care physicians and specialists in the field can have. Um, it's easy to assume that all medical professionals come from the same place and approach a certain condition with the same context, but we've seen in, in multiple therapy areas that that isn't the case. So some recent work that I've been doing around migraine has revealed that for primary care physicians, there's a tendency to talk about migraine with very diminishing language. So actually in France, um, in the French language, they don't even have a word for the term migraine specifically. They just refer to it, um, broadly speaking, as headaches. And sometimes when they are being a bit more specific, um, French primary care, primary care physicians can use maladie de femme, which translates to a woman's disease. So they're really, really revealing a lot about the extent to which they take migraine seriously as its own condition. Then if you look at specialists in the exact same area, they're approaching it in a completely different way and talking about migraine in a completely different way. And the way that you describe that is so interesting because like you were talking about earlier, Jen, that the way that we use language reveals a little bit about our conceptions of the world. So the fact that they call it melody de femme also shapes the way that they're perceiving that and probably their rates of diagnosing. Absolutely. And it shapes, not surprisingly, it shapes how patients feel about their own condition. They're not likely to persist in trying to find the treatment and trying to find relief if um, medical professionals are dismissing their concerns in this kind of way. Yeah, and it's bringing it back to kind of why do we care about discourse? This essentially means that the, the language that's being used, the wording that's being used, is essentially telling patients not to take their own pain and their own experience seriously, that it's not really something that needs to be given any particular uh, weight. And that's precisely the motivation behind a movement in English-speaking countries about not calling migraine headaches migraine headaches, but calling them migraine attacks, because that conveys more seriously the experience of having a migraine. I don't know if either of you have had a migraine before, but it is awful. <laughs> and it's it feels much more accurate to discuss it as a migraine attack rather than a headache. So what are we looking for when we do discourse analysis? What kinds of things are we looking for when we talk about something like linguistic analysis? Or, um, you know, let, can we talk a bit about what you or I might be looking for when we sit down to kind of take this on? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, it's the question on the tip of everyone's tongue um, when talking about discourse analysis, because it can seem kind of abstract and vague. So I think the best way to show what we're actually doing when we do linguistic analysis would be to use an example. So and the example that always comes to my mind is Bill Clinton's famous statement on the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. So the statement that he made is, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And there are a lot of deliberate choices in that statement. So another thing that he could have said is I did not elicit a blowjob from that woman. He also could have said, I did not elicit a blowjob from Monica Lewinsky and actually use her name. And in each 
version of those statements that I just gave, the language gets more specific and direct about the allegations against Bill Clinton. So he made a very kind of concrete and deliberate choice to abstract the specific allegation of a blowjob to sexual relations. So this is a distancing tactic, which basically amounts to using a, con a category noun. So sexual relations would be a category noun rather than using a concrete noun like blowjob. It's a bit like the difference between saying fruit, which is a category noun, or orange, which is a concrete noun within that category. Another important choice that he made was referencing that woman rather than using Monica's name, Monica Lewinsky. And essentially what he's done is very explicitly erase the victim from his narrative and from his statement. So he's again adding a second level of abstraction in that specific statement there. So looking at these kind of linguistic techniques, you can unpick a little bit about what the intentions are behind the statement and what the meaning is behind the statement and a little bit about the way that Bill Clinton wants to be perceived in what he's saying. And also just the amount of distance that he's trying to put between himself and this incident, all of this language, you know, he's kind of trying to stay as far away from it as possible while still making a statement. Exactly. And he's using these linguistic te techniques exactly. to do that. Yeah. Fascinating. And we see this all over the healthcare world as well. So, for example, just looking in a newspaper, you might see something like sugar is creeping into the diets of young people, causing childhood obesity to rise. So in this sentence, what is the subject? The, the topic is sugar, right? It is the um, causal agent and the culprit. But there are so many other ways that we could be saying this. Obviously, sugar is an inanimate object, and so we're putting an unreasonable amount of, of agency in its hands, in a way. So we could say something a bit rephrased. For example, young people are consuming more sugar and gaining weight, where we see that, the, that there's agency that some, an actual person can take. So sugar is creeping into the diets of young people, it's very much kind of communicating that in a way there's nothing that anyone can do about it. It's just happening. And there's no real agent in this that, that could, could have any control or responsibility over it. Whereas saying something like young people are consuming more sugar and gaining weight or something like the food industry is adding sugar to children's snacks, causing childhood obesity to rise, we see increasing layers of, of responsibility, essentially, of who is the passive versus the active part of this sentence and this structure. So even just something like this headline tells us a lot about who we think may be responsible or who we want to kind of try and shelter from responsibility. I'm sure that you can all think of an example or two that you may have seen in, in recent news headlines as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's crazy to me that these assumptions about who has responsibility and who's culpable and therefore who is deserving of blame can be revealed through these tiny linguistic moments. So they paint a, a much bigger picture. So kind of on the topic of sugar, Jen, I know that you have diabetes and we know from a lot of previous research that there are really kind of interesting and nuanced discourses around diabetes. I wondered if you would be happy to talk to us about that. 
Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, so I have type 1 diabetes, and we can already start with a level of kind of discourse by uh, just pointing out that um, most people with diabetes prefer that kind of framing rather than being a diabetic, um, which kind of takes over your identity. We try to kind of keep it as part of who we are by saying, you know, I have type 1 diabetes rather than I am a type 1 diabetic in my case. So the linguistic frame, framework, or essentially the discourse, has traditionally been in this space one of who is the actor, and therefore who is the one with responsibility, and therefore blame. So it, as a type 1 myself, um, there's a lot of language that just doesn't offer the possibility to remove me as the main responsible party. So, for instance, there's a lot of active language around ownership. So, your HbA1c, your sugar levels, your control, your time and range, your this, your that, and it's, it makes it really difficult to separate the person's sense of self from the status of the medical condition that they're dealing with. So, it's kind of telling you, it's you know, as, as a type 1, it's telling me that my HbA1c, my sugar levels, my control, that is my identity and it is fully my responsibility and within my control. When there aren't often really alternative ways for that to be phrased. And so we already know that patient guilt is common across a, a vast range of medical conditions and this type of language really focuses in on the patient as the actor and this discourse leads to that kind of feeling of guilt and of regret where you're positioned in the discourse as really the only active party, if you will. And this is something that we also see in non-medical discourses. So for example, in victim-blaming discourses. So for instance, in so many rape cases, there is a prominent discourse around what the victim has ownership of. So their appearance, their clothing, their location, the time of day. So this discourse really minimizes the responsibility of the aggressor. Where are they in all of those statements? Just as the discourse in type 1 diabetes minimizes the responsibility of factors that the patient doesn't control, such as hormones, exact content of food, the exact time that it takes for the medication or the insulin to take effect may not be the same every single time. And so this discourse in which the patient or the victim is holding the responsibility is part of a larger context in which you also have the HCP, who, at least in the case of type 1 diabetes, the HCP is going to be fully focused on the disease, on what the sugar levels are, what the HbA1c reading is, and on patient adherence, uh, and what can be done or is being done to improve outcomes. And what I say, what can be done or what is being done, underneath that we read, by the patient. So for a type 1, this culminates in one word, which is control. And the language used within type 1, the type 1 diabetes community actually further echoes kind of the burden and the, the, the pervasiveness of this idea of control, this discourse that kind of leads us to the word control. So there's a joke uh, in the community and if you've never met someone before and you use it, they'll totally get it. With talking about our sugar levels, you know, we'll say something like, um, you know, oh, you know, my 
my high blood sugar, my low blood sugar is a result of what I ate, how much insulin I administered, what time I woke up, what shoes I wore, the wind, the song on the radio, what color <laughs> the lady on the other side of the street is wearing, whether the person in line behind me at the store prefers basketball or baseball. So, I mean, I've said these things, I've heard these things um, from others in the community, and really, it, and it always, it always, it's not always the same little examples, but it always takes the same flow. There's a few things that we actually do have some, you know, relative amount of control over to things that just are totally random and have nothing to do with us. And so this really encapsulates a dynamic that people with type 1 diabetes face where it's seen as one dimensional in terms of, you know, the patient as the, the actor and the one with responsibility and control over everything. But our lived experience is one in which that's not the case that it's so much more than just a matter of, of what we're doing, how much we're doing, that there's some other elements that play into it as well. That's so interesting, and it really echoes a lot of what I've been seeing amongst people living with migraines. So that, um, that joke that you mentioned of, oh, maybe it was the sunshine, maybe it was um, the person standing behind me in the supermarket. Um, there are similar um, jokes made um, amongst patients living with migraine. There is a, often an attempt to match up any triggers that can cause migraine attacks, but to some extent that effort can sometimes feel futile because a lot of the time nobody really knows why you're having a migraine attack. But what happens when you have these apps and diaries that encourage patients to track their triggers, it can have that unintended consequence of making patients feel like they have failed somehow if they do then have a migraine attack, that something went wrong that they didn't control, some trigger that they didn't manage. Um, so yeah, I really thank you for sharing this. It's so interesting. Sure. Yeah, and if I might just interject, um, that's not to say that you know these things aren't useful and valuable, but I think that uh, what matters is in the broader discourse with the HCP community and um, in the consultations between patients and their specialists, having more time in the, the dialogue to address the, the life of the patient beyond just kind of the, the science and the disease. Uh, I know in type 1 that is starting to change, which is really great, and kind of alleviating some of the burden from the patient by acknowledging that they can't control everything in those consultations, I think can make patients more feel more comfortable to pick up these types of tools and resources. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And when thinking about the idea of a controlled discourse, it resonates with actually how sometimes how very random our health outcomes can be. And it reminds me of um, some research that I did when I was working at the Cambridge Institute of Public Health a few, a few years back, where I was doing discourse analysis on a sample of interviews of stroke patients. And I was analyzing these interviews of very severely impacted stroke patients. So they were highly dependent on their carers. They had really substantial loss of functioning. But what kept repeatedly cropping up in these interviews that really took me by surprise, were these repeated expressions of gratitude from stroke patients. They kept reporting that they felt lucky. And the thing about 
a luck comparison is that if you're going to make a luck comparison, you can either compare upwards to someone who has a better hand than you, or you can compare downwards to someone who has worse luck than you. What kept happening for these stroke patients is that they never compared upwards to someone who had better health outcomes than them. They were always comparing downwards. And this would happen even if they had never met anyone in their entire lives who had worse health outcomes than them. In that case, they were able to imagine and construct a worse patient based off rumors they'd heard in hospitals or people they'd seen on TV, and they were able to compare their own luck to that imagined patient who had it even worse off. Which I think, in and of itself, the fact that people who an outsider might think were not very lucky considered themselves and spoke about themselves repeatedly as being very lucky people. So that, that I found interesting in its own right, but then when I was looking at also where in the sequence of stroke patients' narratives about their stroke and about their recovery, where were they bringing this up? And they tended to bring it up in one of two moments. And the first one was just before or just after they were reporting a negative experience with healthcare systems or just before or after making a complaint. So there was one respondent who was asked how health services could have better supported her during her first stroke. And she mentioned how exhausting her household chores were. So very shortly after she articulated these negative experiences and made these complaints, she changed the subject completely to offer another area of her life um, where she felt very fortunate. So she was saying, I feel really exhausted. I can't cook. It's, it's affecting my daily functioning in multiple ways. Oh, but one good thing is, I sleep like a log at night. I don't have any problems with sleeping, so that's lucky, isn't it? A second moment when people would often evoke a luck discourse is when they wanted to soften a refusal of treatment or when they wanted to present themselves as particularly healthy. So one participant had actually canceled a few appointments for speech therapy. And they, the reasoning that he gave for why he was going to cancel the speech appointment is he said that there are people out there who've had strokes that are a sight worse than me. And for context, this person had had a very severe stroke. So what's essentially happening here is that patients were using this theme of luck and this discourse of luck as a way to manage how they anticipated being perceived as listeners. So they were worried about being perceived either as ungrateful or secondarily and mostly males were conceived, worried about being perceived as being vulnerable or frail. So in academia land, those unfavorable perceptions are what we call forbidden discourses. So they're narratives that are not very socially desirable to claim. So in some sense, they're kind of discursively out of bounds. And I would hypothesize that the eagerness of patients to draw these kind of explicit comparisons with less lucky or worse off patients are a way to negate the possibility that a listener will interpret them as fragile, dependent, or in other cases, ungrateful. That's really interesting because we've heard similar discourses, haven't we, around COVID-19. I know I certainly have that people are often saying, well, other people have it so much worse than me. 
And it, it reminds me a little bit of moral licensing where people feel badly about complaining, like you say, Emma, and so they want to kind of state that they acknowledge the luck that they've had or they acknowledge the ways in which their situation is preferable to other people, perhaps. But it's that kind of using that discursive permission or forgiving their earlier statement by making a statement around their their privilege or their luck. Yeah, that's a really nice way of articulating it, actually. <laughs> and it's really interesting to hear you to talk about the role that language plays, because I think, obviously, for decades, we've known that the words that people use are important. And we often look at creating lexicons for brands in how to reflect the terms that their customers are using. But I think this more um, academically founded angle of the discourse analysis is important because it brings in the concept of of power and how people are expressing their non-conscious preferences in the way that they're using language, structuring sentences, and expressing their beliefs. We've seen it work really well on kind of a collective level as well as an individual level to look at the way customers are structuring their sentences and on the whole the specific terms that keep coming up again and again and Jen it was really interesting to hear you use the word control that's something that I think we've seen in so many therapy areas definitely diabetes also therapy areas like asthma where it's very common for the discourse to be around the control and the patient, whether the patient is quote unquote under control as well. So it's really interesting to kind of see how those themes come up. I mean, it is fascinating that control is one of the most pervasive kind of concepts and words in the healthcare space. It certainly leaves us with a lot, a lot of things for, for us academics to think about. <laughs> yeah. So one of the questions that we often get from clients that I'd be interested in your reaction to is when we are thinking about the way we look at language, and a lot of the examples were of individual cases, but you made the point at the beginning, Emma, that we need to, in order to really analyze the discourse, we need to look at it at a very macro societal contextualized level. A lot of our clients have asked about can we do discourse analysis or can we do linguistic analysis on an individual interview, say, or a, do we need to listen to the whole interview to analyze the linguistics or is it something that we can look at on a collective level? I don't know if you guys have any thoughts. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great question. And um, I would say that you can think of it as kind of a tree or, you know, something that, 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 that grows. So uh, you can take, one patient's responses, for instance, and still get something useful from that, particularly using linguistic analysis tools, you can still gain information from that. But that would be more telling simply of that patient's perceptions and that patient's experience and, and their opinions or you know their feelings. Um, the more patients you speak to, then you may start to see themes and then you know you can you can kind of have a transition to the the discourse analysis level where you're looking not only at those building blocks of a discourse which are individual dialogues but also the way that that discourse sustains itself and what that discourse looks like so that would be what's at the greater level so for example 
you know, we have two people in the type 1 diabetes community talking, you know, joking about how, oh, yeah, like my blood sugar level was high a few hours ago. Oh, you know, I it might have been what I ate or, you know, the, the, the side of the street that I walked down, et cetera, et cetera. So you can get you can get something useful from that one one on one interaction. But then when you think about the larger discourse around control, um, where that kind of like ownership language of, of me doing everything, right? Like you can use this to, you can make your diabetes management more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. That's where you see kind of the, the discourse element of it. And so, so there's valuable information to come from both, for sure. Uh, it's just kind of of a slightly different nature. And I agree with you. So I like to make, I try to be precise about making a distinction between linguistic analysis, which is looking more at individual sentences or individual interactions or dialogues between a small number of speakers. I try to make a distinction between those more micro-level interactions that I would perform linguistic analysis on and those much larger frameworks and set of assumptions and rules that we use to think about and to speak about topics, which is what I would perform discourse analysis on. But a lot of the analytic practices are similar. That's so great. And I think one of the things I have really enjoyed seeing unfold is the way that we've been able to apply this knowledge quite pragmatically in depending on the needs of individual studies in the market research context. So we have a particular offering for reviewing previous interviews with a linguistic lens and a discourse level understanding uh, so that clients can under apply that linguistic lens even to studies that they've already completed. And I've had the pleasure of working with both Emma and Jen on individual studies where they've performed linguistic analysis of particular physician or patient quotations to pull out the way that some of those power dynamics are being expressed. And I think it really adds a lot of value. I think one of my favorite examples um, comes from a study we were doing in women's health, but we were able to listen to consultations with patients and physicians, so real recordings of patients and physician consultations, and it was so powerful to apply the linguistic lens to that work. And one of my favorite examples of it was where physicians would use, non completely non-consciously would use language like, okay, so we only have one more thing to discuss, I just wanted to check that you're okay, everything's still okay with your medication, right? So the way that they kind of said, okay, so we only have one more thing to discuss, sets the expectation that this is wrapping up, that there's very limited time. They use the um, expression of everything's okay with your medication, right? Which is kind of a very unidirectional question that's almost hypothetical um, in that it doesn't require a response. And it's kind of pushing the patient to say, yes, everything's fine because we don't have a lot of time rather than saying, okay, so finally, do you have anything that you'd like to discuss around your medication or how are things working or anything more open? So just that subtle shift and the linguistic lens can really illuminate a lot. It's really interesting that you would close an appointment with such a leading question and a question that is assuming agreement. Um, certainly when designing our own questionnaires and discussion guides, that is exactly the type of um, leading language that we try to avoid. And another interesting point, just kind of on maybe a broader discourse rather than linguistic analysis 
scale to give another example of how they, they may differ. That uh, example that you just gave, Katie, uh, everything's okay with your medication, right? Not only does it do all of the things that you discussed, but think about kind of the message that that's sending to the patient that really their daily experience, right? The medication that they're taking, I would assume every day, that experience doesn't actually really matter to the healthcare provider. It's an afterthought for them and they don't really need or want a response to that question is what the, you know, it's kind of the, the subtext, at least the way I would perceive it, of that message. Yeah, so true. It's almost like it's the um, and other business on the end of the meeting agenda. It's really fascinating. I think when you take this lens, you start to see the way that the, that language is really shaping the context for different discussions. and you can see immediately why it is so useful to understand for things like drivers and barriers, for certainly for any clients that are looking to hone their messaging to align with those discourses to make sure it's, it's as resonant as possible, and any other areas where we're trying to get a sense of what is the frame of mind that people are in in this area and what are some of the ways in which they might feel under pressure to do things in a particular way or express their beliefs in particular ways. There's the, the applications of discourse and linguistic analysis seems almost, almost limitless. I would say the only bad thing about um, linguistic and discourse analysis and getting a training in it is that it does make you slightly paranoid about the way that you phrase all of your sentences. Great. So with that, we will uh, wrap up and say thanks very much, Jen and Emma, for your excellent talking about talking. And join us later this month for another uh, Shift podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. Mm -hmm.